From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, December 6th. I'm Marco Werman. Tanks keep protesters from Egypt's presidential palace. The country's draft constitution is at the heart of the tensions. This expert says it's the product of a flawed process. You might say that there would be no worse way to draft a constitution than the way Egypt has done it. And later, conjuring the ghosts of history by blending old photos with new ones. It is this magic realization that I also had as a little girl, that history is, is here. It's where you are. It's all around us. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Egypt's Islamist president says he's ready to engage in dialogue with his opponents. But in his speech today on live TV, Mohamed Morsi did not give his critics what they wanted. He did not rescind the decree with which he gave himself sweeping powers, and he did not cancel next week's referendum on a disputed draft constitution. Instead, Morsi vowed that his new powers will expire after the vote, no matter the outcome. Morsi also expressed sorrow about the loss of life yesterday, a result of violent clashes between supporters and opponents of the president. Borzu Daragahi is Middle East correspondent for the Financial Times. He's in Cairo. So President Morsi was in crisis meetings today with members of his cabinet and military leaders. Any concessions, Borzu? Up until now, we've not heard any concessions or even, uh, you know, who exactly he's been meeting with, whether he's been meeting with members of the opposition or with uh, any kind of mediators. However, the political party from which he hails and his, his supporters, the Muslim Brotherhood, issued a statement uh, today in which they accused the uh, opposition of engaging in uh, treachery, terrorism and thuggery in an attempt to overthrow the government. And they vowed to uh, destroy this revolt. They say that they were the victims of this violence. They say that the so-called uh, uh, opposition was engaging in a conspiracy. You know, you have the same kind of rhetoric coming from the other side. Uh, so there doesn't appear to be any toning down in the rhetoric. I've read that a number of uh, Morsi's ministers have, have walked away from him. Do you know how many and ha- how big a problem does that really pose for the president? Approximately five presidential advisors have resigned. In addition, the guy he appointed to oversee the upcoming uh, referendum on the Constitution abruptly resigned uh, yesterday evening. I don't think this poses a logistical challenge However, it further isolates them. The people that resigned were the uh, window dressing of the government, the token Christians and liberals who were uh, brought on to uh, give the government a wider appeal than just the Islamists. So their departure further isolates Morsi, further uh, locks him into this world where the only voices he's hearing are uh, those of the Muslim Brotherhood and his own political party and prevents him from really understanding what's going on out in the streets. Uh, It seems like the conflict between Morsi and his opponents is becoming more violent. What has been the reaction to this barbed wire cordon? Uh, I think people are really stunned by the nature of the violence. Uh, This is really 
Egypt uh, teetering on the edge of a, a rather deep and dark abyss, the prospect of uh, real civil conflict uh, between the two major social forces in this country, you know, the, the po- prospect of these two camps uh, fighting it out on the streets is uh, uh, really uh, not a good thing for Egypt. It's not a good thing for the society. It's terrible for the economy. And I think people see that, yet they see both sides sort of edging uh, deeper toward this type of conflict. Borzi, where does this all go now? I mean, does it uh, remain in standoff mode until the 15th, uh, the day of the referendum? Yeah, I think there's still some question as to whether the referendum uh, can be held, certainly whether it should be held, uh, given the circumstances. I covered Iraq for uh, many years and was based in Baghdad, and I remember what happened there when the um, you know authorities pushed through a constitution uh, without the uh, Sunni Arab uh, buy-in to the constitution or even to the the, uh, the, the vote on the Constitution, they were only 20% of the uh, people there. That ignited a, a years-long civil war. Imagine what could happen in a country uh, where you have like 40 to 60% of the people who don't buy into the Constitution or even the process of producing the Constitution. And so that becomes a very dangerous situation where the basic law of a country, the basic ground rules of the country are not accepted by a huge uh, plurality of the population. Borzu Daragahi, Middle East correspondent for the Financial Times. Always good to speak with you. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Tom Ginsburg has rolled up his sleeves and helped a number of countries, including Tunisia, draft new constitutions. He teaches international law at the University of Chicago, and he's taken a close look at Egypt's draft constitution, and he sees one big winner. Tom, who does this draft constitution reward, in your view? Well, in my view, the real winner here is the military. While the Islamists and the opposition are fighting it out in the streets of Cairo, the military's uh, safely ensconced in the barracks. But looking at the provisions of the draft constitution, they seem to have really come out quite well. And what provisions actually are there in the constitution that are going to help the military? For one thing, there used to be a body called the National Defense Council in Egypt, which oversaw strategy and military affairs. And uh, the new constitution bifurcates that into two separate bodies, one of which is civilian-led, which is supposed to deal with strategy. But the other is, again, still called the National Defense Council, which is responsible for, among other things, the military budget. It consults on draft laws, and it also gets to consult on declarations of war, the deployment of forces. That body, uh, if you count the members, has a majority of military officers on it. So the military seems to retain a kind of veto power over where they will be used and who's going to control their budget. Is it your understanding that the military in Egypt had uh, input in drafting this constitution? Not that we know of. Of course, there probably was some consultation behind the scenes. I'm told by sources there that uh, military officers are are pretty happy with the draft, and and I certainly can see why. They didn't have to publicly assert their red lines, but they maintain many of the prerogatives of the Mubarak period. And the Constitution, does it stop short of creating an Islamist theocracy? That's a good question. You know, there's certainly been a lot of concern about the provisions on Islam in the Constitution. That seems to be one of the main issues that's being fought about today in Cairo. With many constitutions, we'll have provisions saying that Islamic law is a source of law. Islamic interpretation will constrain certain rights and privileges. The devil is always in the details over who administers these things and who interprets them. For many years, Egypt's Islamic provisions were interpreted by a supreme constitutional court that was very secular. 
I think one of the concerns that the liberals in Egypt have today is if the courts were to become much more Islamic, that might down the road lead to uh, much stricter interpretations. In addition, Al-Azhar Mosque is mentioned in the constitution and gets to consult on matters related to Islam. Uh, it's not clear what that means, but one might imagine an interpretation which would allow Al-Azhar to actually weigh in on what the courts ought to be doing in interpreting the provisions. How would you assess the whole drafting of Egypt's constitution right now? I mean, it seems to have kind of gone off the rails. And if so, when did that happen? You might say that there would be no worse way to draft a constitution than the way Egypt has done it. Really? Uh, How did they do it? That's so bad. Well, it's been helter-skelter from the beginning. Mubarak had carefully uh, designed the constitution to serve his interests. And as soon as he fell from power, there was a series of amendments to get rid of the most egregious provisions that empowered the president. Shortly thereafter, though, just two weeks after that, the military issued its constitutional declaration, which uh, it announced was suspending the constitution and would govern the transition period. So there was, uh, from the very outset, confusion over which rules were going to govern. Was it going to be the 1971 constitution as revived, which is actually not that bad a document, or was it going to be this military declaration? After the parliamentary elections last year, they formed a constituent assembly, uh, but a few months after that, the courts declared that constituent assembly to be unconstitutional. They've had many chances to have an inclusive process which brings everyone together, but in any case, what they have now is they've really, really blown it on the process and they've created a lot of fear about that new dictatorship emerging. Tom Ginsberg teaches international law at the University of Chicago and runs the Comparative Constitutions Project. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. You can see the drama in Egypt and Syria, not to mention the controversy over Israel's settlement plans, all this expressed in political cartoons. That's at theworld.org. There's a new app called History Pin that you may have heard of. It lets you take a photo on your smartphone and then blend it with a historic photo of the same spot. It's pretty darn cool. This kind of photographic mashup of past and present is popular online, and one of the most popular sites is Ghosts of History. The world's Clark Boyd has a story of the Dutch woman behind the site. Jo Hedvig Theovische was born and raised in The Hague. History has always been very interesting and magical to me, even as a little girl. I've always had this magical idea of what happened in my street before I was born. Theovish has made her passion her profession. After attending film school, she started a historical consultancy business. She helps museums and TV and film productions get the feel and flavor of history just right. And that means having a keen eye. Back when she was a student, Teovisha spotted a bunch of old negatives at an Amsterdam flea market. She decided to spend her dinner money on the negatives. You know, they were all in folders, and the folders were full of notes and comments, and whoever made those photos wrote down a lot of information, except his name. It's a little bit like a mystery, an extremely curious person, and I, especially when it comes to history, so I really wanted to find out more about this family where the pictures were coming from. It turns out there were more than 300 black-and-white shots from the last years of World War II, 1944 and 45. They detailed daily life in Amsterdam and other parts of Holland. Theovisha thought she recognized some of the locations, so she went to try to find them and photograph them. One of the old negatives was a shot of factory workers sitting on some steps in Amsterdam. While I was researching the area, I suddenly saw these steps, and I thought... it's, it's not possible. This is, this, these are the, the same steps where these people were sitting on. So I took a picture and back home I thought, well, maybe they are. They look so similar. But I really had to, as you know, not, not for fun, but a proper history tool, I had to 
overlay them and compare them. And then I realized that it was exactly the same set of stairs. And that's how the Ghosts of History project got started a few years ago. Teovisha started taking the negatives and then mashing them up with modern-day photos of the same location. An especially striking one shows Dom Square in full-color modern-day Amsterdam. As your eye travels up, though, the colors fade, and you see a huge SS placard in black and white on a building. In the background, that past gives way again to a McDonald's sign. Teovisha put her mashed-up photos online and then kind of forgot about them. Then, on the photo-sharing site Flickr, she came across a set of World War II-era photos from Normandy, side-by-side with modern-day photos of the same locations. She asked the owners of the photos if she could mash them up, and they agreed. Suddenly, a modern-day French crosswalk teams with Allied soldiers running to avoid gunfire. A dead German soldier rests against a modern doorstep. Jo Hedvig Teovisha says the effect strikes a chord with people. The very dramatic one of a dead German soldier, he, he died on someone's doorstep. You know, that could be your doorstep. Teovish has built up quite a community of followers for Ghosts of History on Flickr and Facebook. She says people from all over the world contact her about potentially usable photos. A lot of teachers, she says, write that they're using her photos in class. Even if children don't know anything about the Second World War, and even if they don't care about the Second World War, they are sometimes, they are still fascinated by the picture because it is this magic realization that I also had as a little girl that history is is here it's where you are it's all around us and that hits a nerve that that makes people suddenly realize that by the way despite years of sleuthing Teovisha still hasn't found out the name of the person who took the original photo she bought at the flea market and as for some of the soldiers in the pictures well no luck identifying them either although she has received some messages from Canadians saying that their fathers might be in the photos, that they helped liberate that part of the Netherlands during 1944 and 1945. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Check out some of these mashups of past and present. They're evocative and also chilling. We have a slideshow at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. I like surprise gifts, especially this time of the year. Hint, hint. And a computer programmer in Boston has come up with a way to make the surprise almost totally random. The World's Alex Galifant explains. For Darius Kazemi, this is a kind of art project. Uh, what I do for my job is I program the internet. And so often I get um, ideas for weird projects that I want to do with the internet. For this one, Kazemi wrote computer code that buys stuff randomly from the online retailer Amazon. It does it on a monthly budget without telling him what it's bought, although it is restricted to books, music, and movies. Specifically, CDs, DVDs, and paperbacks because I wanted physical objects. Not digital downloads or anything like that. Kazemi wanted packages in the mail. So not long ago, he ran the program for the first time. After a few days, two packages arrived at home. My wife was sitting there sort of amused. Well, your packages arrived. Let's, let's see what's here. Let's take some pictures. The first one contained a book about linguistics by Noam Chomsky. I laughed out loud because Chomsky is a central figure in computer cognition. And then the second package I opened uh, was much more mysterious. It was a CD. It was a black cover. And it said, Akash Rosman. And 
I looked on the back of the CD and there was no track listing and no indication of genre. All I could really tell was that it was printed in Sweden. I thought there was a maybe an error on the disc that I got because uh, it was um, a cacophony. Akos Rosman was a Hungarian Swedish composer. He died in 2005. Kazemi moved on to the second track. It was like nothing I had ever heard before, and uh, it was really uh, a wonderful experience to have my mind opened up to um, a musician that I never would have found otherwise. I know it was randomly chosen, but it almost felt like a thoughtful gift from uh, something that I had created. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. Your radio is just fine. Now, Brazil is mourning one of the greatest figures today in its history. The remains of architect Oscar Niemeyer were flown by presidential plane today to the capital, Brasilia, for a memorial service. Niemeyer died yesterday in Rio de Janeiro. He had a long and productive life. Next week would have been his 105th birthday. Oscar Niemeyer was considered one of the most influential figures in modern architecture. He worked all over the world, but his biggest legacy is Brasilia, the capital that Brazil built from scratch. In 1956, Niemeyer was asked by the president at the time to design the new capital's government buildings. His groundbreaking designs still stand and are still admired today. Lawrence Vale is Ford Professor of Urban Design and Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He says Niemeyer was known for his love of curves juxtaposed with tall lines. Niemeyer was a man who didn't like to fly, so he let his buildings fly for him. That's one way to put it. Mm. In other words, it was somebody who took the material of reinforced concrete and made it move or seem to move, a contradictory thing that probably has only been matched in the Sydney Opera House by Jörn Utzon. And so that there is this kind of curvilinear modernism that gets associated with Brasilia and distinctly with Niemeyer. He was the chief architect working with the planner Lucio Costa, and uh, did a lot of the designs for both the public buildings and many of the superblock high-rise, mid-rise housing complexes that also made this such a distinctive uh, city. Well, I want to ask you more about Brazilian in just a moment, but it's interesting to note uh, for our listeners uh, as an orientation point that Niemeyer was part of a team of architects who designed the UN headquarters in Manhattan. That was completed in 1952. Uh, Brasilia would have just been underway. There's a simplicity of shape in the U.N. headquarters in New York, but also a grandness. Do you see a thread between Niemeyer's work on the U.N. and his designs for Brasilia? Well, the thread starts with that building for the ministry in Rio in the 1930s and continues with the Secretariat Tower in Manhattan oh, the UN, yeah. uh, and is visible in Brasilia. And at the same time, the, the kind of curve of the U.N. General Assembly building is echoed in the kind of sensuous curves of Niemeyer's famous work in Brasilia, too. Now, you wrote the book on capital city design, uh, Architecture, Power, and National Identity. Brasilia, as a manufactured capital city, how does what Niemeyer did there compare with other capital cities that have kind of sprung up from the ground that you visited? Well, the amazing thing is how similar many of these capitals are in their basic urban design, the the long axis leading to a privileged high place for government. 
But many of these places, think of Washington or, or others, uh, get built up slowly over time. What's so amazing about Brasilia is that it's so visibly a single aesthetic and an aesthetic that was controlled by one man and many of his compatriots. So what's so remarkably different about Brasilia is that it really feels like a late 1950s period piece, both in some of the residential characteristics and in some of the government buildings. I mean, a lot of people say that the, these modern manufactured capitals, they serve quite well, perhaps, as administrative places, but as far as residential places, not so much. You were there in July in Brasilia. Does it feel relevant? Does it feel perhaps maybe more relevant than it did when it was built? Well, it's both entirely relevant and remarkably irrelevant <laughs> at the same time. Uh, on the one hand, some of the Niemeyer-designed apartment complexes are among the most sought-after places now that they've got a half-century of wonderful trees growing in. They don't seem so stark, and they're highly desirable. On the other hand, the plan that was designed at the heart of Brasilia for a couple of hundred thousand people is totally dwarfed by the totality of a city of two million. Mm. So 90 percent of the population doesn't live in that design plan. So it's completely irrelevant for the people who cannot afford to live in the core of the modernist design. Which seems somewhat contradictory for me because there's a kind of hopefulness and optimism for the world in a lot of Oscar Niemeyer's designs. Talk about that optimism and how it was a part of a larger utopian vision Niemeyer had. Well, what's so remarkable is that this was someone whose left-wing politics really did infuse what he tried to do, particularly in the residential parts of it, where he envisioned these residential superblocks to be inhabited by the full class range of the Brazilian bureaucracy, so that the, the janitors and the ministers would be in the same building. It was both a dramatic and, as it turned out, completely naive vision for how society might operate because very quickly the wealthiest decamped to single-family opportunities along the, the new lake, and, uh, and the poorest were never welcomed into the pilot plan to begin with. Lawrence Vale, Ford Professor of Urban Design and Planning at MIT, thank you very much. You're very welcome. You can see pictures of Niemeyer's famous design aesthetic at theworld.org. Until very recently, Niemeyer was still an active thinker and creator. In fact, last year, at the age of 103, he even composed a samba. It's called Tranquilo Com A Vida, which roughly means at peace with life. Here's a taste. Samba by the late Brazilian architect Oscar Niemeyer. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a cancer that's rare in the U.S. is killing children in Africa. It's caused by a virus which gives doctors some hope. If you know an infection is a cause of cancer, if you attack the infection, you can actually prevent the cancer. That story is just ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report online at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. This week, we're broadcasting a special series on cancer in parts of the world where you generally don't hear much about it. People often assume that in developing countries, cancer isn't a big problem, that the real health problems there are infectious diseases like HIV and malaria. Those are big problems, to be sure, but infectious diseases can also trigger cancer, especially in places like sub-Saharan Africa. Here again is reporter Joanne Silberner. More than half a century ago, an Irish physician named Dennis Burkett moved to Uganda and opened a medical clinic. He was struck by the large number of children with grotesque facial swellings, swellings that often grew large enough to choke and kill. It was a type of cancer he'd never seen back home. The cancer came to be called Burkitt's lymphoma. Today, on the pediatric ward of the Uganda Cancer Institute, the beds are filled with children with Burkitt's. It's the most common childhood cancer in equatorial Africa. Dr. Abrahams Omading says the cancer starts with an infection. Burkitt's lymphoma is associated with a virus called Epstein-Barr virus. Epstein-Barr is also the virus that causes mononucleosis. But in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, it can initiate Burkitt's lymphoma, with malaria playing some sort of role. Omadink says many people don't realize that infections can cause cancer. People usually think cancers are usually caused either by bad habits, smoking, alcohol, uh, growing old, you know, bad feeding, or exposure to radiations or chemicals. Those things can trigger cancer, but so can bacteria called H. pylori that cause ulcers and sometimes stomach cancer. The parasite responsible for the tropical disease schistosomiasis can lead to bladder cancer. Cervical cancer is caused by the human papillomavirus. And there's more, says Omadine. We've got liver cancer. It's associated with hepatitis B virus. We've got Kaposi sarcoma. Kaposi sarcoma is caused by a virus that attacks people with weak immune systems, people with HIV. And it's in epidemic proportions in Uganda. The list is long. So you can definitely see, oh, these are the most common cancers that we see, and all of them are actually virus related, different in in the U.S. Very different in the U.S. In North America, only one in 25 cancers can be blamed on infectious agents. In developing countries, it's one of every four cancers, according to a recent study in the medical journal The Lancet. The reason? Poor sanitation in developing countries means greater exposure to germs. In addition, people in places like sub-Saharan Africa aren't likely to be vaccinated against viruses that can cause cancer, such as the hepatitis B virus. 8,800 miles from Kampala in Seattle, Washington, scientists at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center are trying to figure out how exactly viruses cause cancer. You don't want to touch anything without the gloves on. In Mei Li Wang's laboratory, scientists get shipments from Uganda every other month. If it's blood sample or tissue, they will come in dry ice. The samples go in freezers that line one wall. The samples are part of a study to determine when children are infected by the virus associated with Burkitt's lymphoma and how long after that the cancer occurs. Wang's boss, Larry Corey, is head of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and he says the work is aimed at one goal. Can we intervene? Can we alter the underlying development of cancer by attacking the virus. The biological link between infections and cancers works like this. Invading organisms infect cells and disrupt the cell's normal workings. 
Corey says the Epstein-Barr virus, for example, infects immune system cells called B cells and causes them to grow. And the more they grow, the more they divide, the more they divide, the more the chance there is of an alteration of the genetic material during the division phase. That alteration causes cells to grow out of control, and that's cancer. It happens all too often, says Corey. But there's good news about infectious organisms and cancer, he says. The link between the two can be broken. If you know an infection is a cause of cancer, if you attack the infection, you can actually prevent the cancer. It's already happening with the HPV vaccine, which protects against many of the viruses that cause cervical cancer and some other cancers. Then there's hepatitis B, which can lead to liver cancer. That's one of the leading causes of cancer deaths in China. But thanks to vaccine programs that began in the 1990s, liver cancer deaths there have begun to drop. There's no vaccine yet that can prevent children in Uganda from getting Burkitt's lymphoma. But Cori's scientists in Seattle and their colleagues in Kampala are working on it together. Cori's long-term dream is vaccines against all infections related to cancer, which would drop the world's cancer death rate by about 20%. For The World, I'm Joanne Silberner in Seattle. And here's another thing that can slash cancer rates, giving up cigarettes. Yet in many developing countries, more people are smoking than ever before. China manufactures some 6 billion cigarettes every day, and the death toll from smoking in that country is expected to triple by 2050. Learn more about China's deadly addiction in our video, Land of Tobacco. That's at theworld.org slash cancer. Here on the radio, we'll have the last installment in our series tomorrow. For patients in the final stages of cancer, morphine often brings comfort, at least in the U.S., but in poor countries, cancer patients routinely die in pain. The fact that what stands between them and the relief of that pain is a drug that costs $2 a week, I think is unconscionable. That's Tomorrow on the World. Our series on cancer in the developing world was produced with support from the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. Our next segment might sound like something straight out of a science fiction horror film, catfish that come on land to hunt for pigeons. This is no fiction, though, and if you don't believe me, check out the catfish in action in a wild video at theworld.org. Now, these giant pigeon-hunting catfish live in the Tarn River in southwestern France. They and their unusual hunting behavior are the topic of a new study published in the journal PLOS One. And the world's science reporter Ritu Chatterjee is here to tell us more about the study. So, Ritu, first of all, describe the scene of the hunt for us. Okay, Marco. So, as you mentioned, this is southwestern France. The catfish live in the Tarn. And right around where this river flows through the city of Albi, there's a small gravel island where the pigeons hang out. They sometimes take a dip in the river, clean themselves, and then sort of hang out um, on the sand at the edge of the water. And this is during the daytime. And catfish are normally nocturnal, but out here, the catfish lurk in the water in the daytime, close to land, then home in on the pigeons, even when they are out of water, hanging out in the sand, and it just pounce on the birds and drag them back to water. And the scientists report that the catfish can have as much as 80% of their body out of the water when hunting. So they're not completely out of the water, but a good bit of them are out. It's kind of like orcas, uh, killer whales hunting sea lions, but just a smaller scale. Exactly. And that's why the authors call these European catfish freshwater killer whales because of the striking similarities in the hunting styles of the two animals. And we have a short video at theworld.org of an orca hunting so people can compare the two creatures' hunting styles. 
Right. No, so as I said, it kind of a smaller scale, but uh, for freshwater fish, these catfish are pretty darn big. Oh, yes, Marco. They're about anywhere between three and a half to five feet long. All right. So it sounds like a monster, but how do they actually detect their prey? Are they cruising along the shore and looking for the pigeons? Uh, well, Marco, yeah, they are. But uh, these are nocturnal creatures and they're typically bottom dwellers. So their eyes aren't very well developed. But you know they have these cat-like whiskers on their heads uh, called barbels. So the catfish barbels or whiskers are absolutely straight. That, along with the fact that the fish attack only the pigeons that are moving, suggests that the fish are picking up on vibrations using their barbels and that's how they find their prey. Mm, that's pretty incredible. The other thing about this story is it's an evolution story. These catfish aren't native to this area, are they? No, they're not. The European catfish is actually native to Eastern Europe, but were introduced into the town in the 80s by anglers. And it's the local anglers who first observed this hunting behavior, the pigeon hunting behavior, and alerted the researchers who then followed up and then studied the catfish more closely. So this is about adaptation. Oh, it is an adaptation story. The catfish is an extremely adaptable creature. In other words, it's a very opportunistic animal. And the scientists think that the fish saw an opportunity in the pigeons and grabbed it. Yeah, amazing. The world's Ritu Chatterjee, thank you so much for stopping by. My pleasure, Marco. Again, you can see the pigeon hunting catfish and the sea lion hunting orcas in videos at theworld.org. In Doha, Qatar today at the Global Climate Talks, the Philippine envoy accused negotiators of procrastinating as the world suffers the growing effects of climate change. The charge comes two days after his country was hit by a freak off-season typhoon that's killed nearly 400 people. And it was among the harshest criticism yet of a conference that may not meet even its modest goals. Efforts to cut climate pollution have been bogged down for years by arguments over which countries should do what. Now they're being further complicated by global economic problems and big changes in energy markets. These changes are even roiling climate efforts in Europe, where consumption of dirty coal is way up. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Spain. What happened in the mountain village of Cerx in northeast Spain was supposed to be an environmental success story. Last year, authorities here shut down a huge old coal-fired power plant that loomed over the village for nearly half a century. It was once Spain's most polluting coal facility, said Cerc's deputy mayor, Jesus Calderer. It was an ecological disaster, Calderer says. The acid rain it produced was killing our forests. The pollution was so bad that the plant's director was convicted of environmental negligence. That was a first in Spain. The Cerx coal-fired plant was also a huge emitter of carbon dioxide, the main pollutant linked to global warming. And closing it was part of a wider move to discourage coal use in Spain. The government recently shut a second coal-burning plant in the north, and this summer it cut subsidies for coal mining, a move that sparked violent two-month-long strikes in which massed miners fired homemade rockets at police and barricaded roads. Despite all these tough moves, though, coal use in Spain is actually up. In 2012, the country burned 15% more coal than the year before. Why? Brian Ricketts, the head of Europe's coal association, Euracoal, says coal got relatively cheaper compared to natural gas. Europe's faced with very expensive gas at the moment, and coal is competing very nicely. Gas is more expensive in Europe because much of it must be piped in, mainly from Russia. It's the opposite from what's been happening in the U.S. recently, where a boom in shale gas has caused prices to plummet relative to coal, and coal's use to fall sharply. Ironically, the U.S. is now exporting the coal it doesn't need to Europe.
That's in part why coal use is up across the continent. Brian Ricketts of Euracoal says it was up 10% in Germany last year, 12% in Italy, and 40% in the UK. And Ricketts says the economic crisis battering southern Europe has completely sidelined concerns about greenhouse gas emissions. Well, of course. I mean, Spain, Greece, Italy, all facing severe austerity measures. In Greece, the uh, decision has been to stop importing gas, which means that uh, Greek indigenous lignite production is up because they can't afford the imported gas. Not to mention costly investments in renewable energy. Until recently, the trend across Europe was toward subsidizing renewables. It's partly why Europe has been leading the U.S. and the rest of the world in cutting greenhouse gas emissions. The European Union pledged under the Kyoto Protocol to reduce emissions by 20 percent from 1990 levels by the year 2020. And the EU's own figures show that emissions in the bloc were trending down over the last two decades. But in 2010, they began to rise again. And the rise could continue if coal remains relatively cheap. Here in Spain, there is virtually no new help for wind or solar or biomass projects. And that has places like Cerques in a bind. Officials had hoped their shuttered coal plant could be converted to cleaner biomass. But there's no money for that now. So the plant, once a symbol of pollution, stands instead as a symbol of economic decline. On Cerques Main Street on a recent morning, a half dozen elderly folks are out buying vegetables from a farmer's van. One shopper, a man with a cane who didn't want to give his name, points up at the mountain. The closing of the coal plant has really affected us, he says, because now there's no work. It's really upsetting. The town lost some 300 jobs directly connected to the plant, and Deputy Mayor Calderer says it created a domino effect, wiping out other businesses, including the local coal mine. Today we have just 1,300 residents, he says, but when the mine was open, it alone provided work for 3,000 people. It was huge. We've lost so much. It's the kind of economic sacrifice that fewer EU countries seem willing or able to make these days. And that means achieving Europe's lofty goal of reducing global greenhouse emissions is proving that much more difficult. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Cerques, Spain. The spotlight is on an extreme case of air pollution now for today's GeoQuiz. We're looking for a city where officials this week shut down schools and government offices and told residents to clear out if possible, all because of the smog. If you go outside to the higher places, if you go to the mountainous area and look at the city, you'll see that a very thick gray cloud is hanging over the city like a monster. The pollution is caused mainly by the exhaust of too many cars and smokestacks in the city, which, by the way, is the capital of a major oil producer. Those mountains are part of the problem, too. They're part of the massive Elburz mountain range that basically blocks the winds that blow down from the Caspian Sea. So can you name this western Asian city shrouded in smog? The answer is just ahead. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This is day two of a dense fog lingering over the city we asked you about in today's GeoQuiz. But it's more than just a matter of unpleasant weather. It's a public health menace. The BBC's Mohsen Asghari, uh, tell us where you are and do you plan to clear out of the city as advised? Actually, uh, I'm in Tehran at the moment, and thanks God that it's raining right now. It's washing out all the smogs and all the toxic gases that had enveloped Tehran. All offices, government offices, schools and universities were closed in the last two days. But the point is, is that if you are in the city, it doesn't have any specific smell or it does not affect your vision. But if you go outside Tehran, if you go to the mountainous area and look at Tehran, you'll see that a very thick gray cloud is hanging over the city like a monster. Does that mean that the city leaders advised residents of Tehran to leave the city in this smog? Two days ago, Iran's Minister of Health asked people to take outside Tehran if they can. And most of the people went out to the northern part of the country, close to the seaside, or to the villages or townships near Tehran. But today it's raining, and the public holiday that was announced by the government is finished. So... That's why families are coming back to Tehran. And so you think the rain now marks the end of this terrible smog, or could it continue again after the rain stops? Temporarily speaking, yes. Rain is an end to this story. But every year we have the same problem. Yeah, why is that? Because Tehran is surrounded by three mountains, and the uh, gases that are generated by cars, these poisonous gases, It is trapped in Tehran because of these long mountains around the city. And also, most of the people want to use their private car instead of public transportation, so they are producing a lot of gases like carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, and their cars are old cars that are generating more gases. Do Iranians uh, tend to kind of flow into the hospitals with health problems related to the smog? According to the latest figures, we have a 15% increase of people who are referring to hospitals because of the problems that they have, like headaches, breathing problems. Mosin, how do you deal with the smog when you go out on the street? Do you wear a mask or something? Working at the BBC means that you have to stay in the city, but not my family. Children and my son and the rest of the family, they found it a very good opportunity to go outside Tehran. Children were the happiest group of the people because they were very happy not going to school. And with their mothers, usually, they went out for picnics outside the city instead of staying in Tehran. Right. Well, here in New England, we get snow days for the kids. I guess there they've got smog days. The BBC's Mohsen Asghari in Tehran, which is the answer to today's GeoQuiz. Thank you very much. Thank you. Finally today, we meet an Iranian musician who's coming out of hiding to tour the U.S. and Canada for the first time. His name is Shaheen Najafi. Earlier this year, he released a song that angered Iran's Ayatollahs. They issued proclamations or fatwas calling for his execution. Someone else placed a $100,000 bounty on his head. Reporter Shuka Kalantari caught up with Najafi in California. Picture this. A man dressed in black stands behind a bar. He has yellowish-green skin and red rings around his eyes. And your mission is to kill him. This is a video game, and the man is Iranian musician Shahin Najafi. The game was made in Iran shortly after a fatwa was put on him last May. Najafi says he knows of the game. In fact, 
He's played it. از یه جهت دیگه هم برای خودم جالب بود که خب مثلا خودم خودمو بکشم. Pretty cool. I got to kill myself. Then I came back. So I enjoyed that. Najafi finds it sad that anyone would want him dead so badly. They produced a video game about it. باید متاسف بشم که بگم که مثلا I feel pretty disappointed that you know someone sat down an Iranian person sat down and made that game and how much hate they have in their heart disappoints me and I I do feel sorry for them. Najafi has had a series of problems with Iranian authorities. He started his music career singing for various underground bands in Iran. But in 2005 he was arrested for performing concerts that officials claimed were inciting unrest and undermining leadership. So he fled the country and moved to Germany. There he produced the song that caused the fatwa. A rap about critical issues facing Iran. Najafi's rap criticizes everything from international sanctions and empty political slogans to the irony of nationalists preying on Chinese-made prayer rugs. It was released on YouTube and it's called Nari. But as Nari began releasing Nari was the final nail in the coffin and where they unequivocally stated how they felt about me which was that I should die. That was 6 months ago. He immediately went into hiding in Germany. While staying under the radar, Najafi continued promoting his recent album. called hitch 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 Najafi doesn't rap much in the new album he says the album is inspired by jazz soft rock and blues Najafi jokes that at 32 he's getting too old to run around on stage and rap for 2 hours straight He says sitting on a chair and playing acoustic guitar is more his speed these days. Najafi's music is popular among many young dissidents in Iran and abroad. Whether he's rapping or singing the blues, his use of satire to highlight Iran's socio-political problems resonates with many Iranians. Within weeks of the fatwa decree, Najafi got thousands more Facebook fans. Many in the Iranian diaspora reached out in support, and they even helped him plan his first U.S. and Canada tour. Najafi says he's actually less scared on tour in the States than when he's in hiding in Europe. That's because he thinks the Iranian government is less likely to lay a hand on him on U.S. soil. for fear of international attention. Najafi says he hopes its concerts can bring the Iranian diaspora together. I've always doubted the power of politics in bringing people together. Art, on the other hand, brings people together all the time. Art can make you cry, it can make you laugh. And it can make your life pretty complicated if you're an Iranian artist who's challenging authority. For the world, I'm Shuka Kalantari, Berkeley, California.
That's all from us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.